Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are in the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about global health and oncology with Dr. Donna Spiegelman. Dr. Spiegelman is Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Biostatistics at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Donna, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I have a doctorate in biostatistics and epidemiology. Uh, epidemiology is formally the definition is the study of the distribution and determinants of health and disease. And what it does on a practical level, many people have heard about epidemiology now since we've had the COVID-19 epidemic, is it traces the um, in, with infectious diseases like COVID and flu and RSV and so forth, it would trace the patterns of spread of the, of the disease and who might be at higher risk, who might be at higher risk for spreading the disease, how effective vaccines and other preventive measures are to stop the spread of the disease and so forth. Um, and then on the what we call the chronic disease front, um, chronic disease meaning um, diseases that aren't infectious but occur over time, such as cancer, the topic of today's discussion, heart disease, diabetes, mental health, and so forth. Um, epidemiologists study the risk factors for these diseases. And um, in terms of cancer, there's quite a bit known about the risk factors for various common and less common causes of cancer, and still more to learn about those causes of cancer. And it's epidemiologists that do that work primarily. Biostatisticians are the people who once data are collected, figure out how to analyze the data to answer questions such as, um, uh, is um, high dietary fat intake a risk factor for breast cancer? The answer in general seems to be no. Or do uh, colonoscopies prevent colorectal cancer incidence? The answer is yes. Does cigarette smoking cause lung cancer? The answer is yes. Biostatisticians in partnership with epidemiologists will take often large amounts of data and, and kind of crunch them down using established statistical methods to answer these kinds of questions and also to quantify the uncertainty there is in the data about these answers. Should we go on from there, Anise, or should I say a little bit more about myself? Yeah, I was about to ask, um, tell us a bit more about what you do, and in particular, your interest in global oncology. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, I've, um, I had um, been a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health for many years, where I worked on um, the kinds of chronic disease epidemiology questions I just described. And um, as uh, my, my career matured, I became more and more interested in taking the information that we have about these risk factors and actually translating them into practice so we could really uh, start 
start um, preventing some of these diseases based on the knowledge. And it's not as if that hadn't been happening before. It certainly had been, but I hadn't been a part of it. And so I wanted to be a part of it. And um, by coming to Yale, where I'm now the director of our Center on Methods for Implementation and Prevention Science, I'm actually able to really dig in very deeply um, to participate in projects that are working on implementing various ways of preventing cancer, both here in the United States as well as overseas, and also in developing statistical methods to improve our ability to do this work. So in terms of global oncology, um, I had some experience with this at Harvard and um, have quite a bit more now that I've come to Yale. And um, uh, the focus that um, we've um, had so far has been on cervical cancer. Um, cervical cancer is actually a, a, a rare cancer in the United States and in high, other high-income countries in Europe. Um, whereas, um, like for example, if I have it right in front of me now, the leading sites of new cancer cases and deaths 2022 from the American Cancer Society among women, cervical cancer isn't even on the list. Whereas, say, in Mexico, it's the second leading cause of cancer incidence and death uh, among women. And in Nepal, it's actually the first. In India, uh, you know, which take this is about a quarter of the world's population, if not more, it's also the first or second leading cause of cancer. So we, we know how to prevent cervical cancer because it used to be quite common here, say, 50 or 100 years ago. Now it's completely prevented by our screening programs. But this knowledge um, hasn't quite made it over to many other countries around the world who could um, use the kind of uh, technology that we have for preventing cervical cancer, possibly adapted to their special contexts. So that's an example of the kind of global oncology work that we're doing here at Yale right now. Which brings us to that other piece that you mentioned in passing about implementation science. So can you talk a little bit more about how exactly implementation science works and how it might be applied to questions like you mentioned in terms of cervical cancer prevention in the global context? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Anise. That's a great question. So uh, implementation science is, uh, say, compared to biostatistics and epidemiology, a relatively new field. It's one that I've really jumped into over the past five or more years, especially um, since I've come to Yale and and at it being the focus of our center here, along with many uh, investigators at the medical school and the Yale New Haven Hospital System, the School of Public Health and elsewhere. And it's, uh, it, it's literally the science of implementing evidence-based interventions. So uh, for example, if we wanna continue on talking about cervical cancer, um, we know that uh, having regular pap smears um, uh, for, uh, for women starting, you know, say when they're 18 or so and going into maybe they're to age 50 or 60 um, um, and then treating those women who have precancerous lesions that appear on the pap smears um, is extremely effective in preventing cervical cancer from developing. And so the question is, say, in Mexico or in Nepal, which are two places we're working, why isn't this happening? So implementation science will start out by 
um, uh, um, um, distributing surveys um, across the spectrum of what we call stakeholders. So stakeholders aren't just the clients or patients, they're also the providers, which could be the providers who are interacting one-on-one -on -one with women. They could be with uh, the providers who are scheduling women to come in for screening and then come back when they, uh, for those women who have abnormal screens, they can be the providers who are actually treating abnormal screens. They could be the directors of facilities. They could be people in the social networks of women, such as their partners, their family members, their neighbors, and co-workers. They could be people um, who are in the ministries of health who are actually making decisions about policies and budget and how much to allocate to different aspects of their healthcare system. And it can be politicians. And what we find around the world with respect to cervical cancer, as well as many other health issues that are preventable and prevented in the United States and other high-income countries, is that usually uh, the World Health Organization, which is the uh, international body that considers global health issues, uh, a very major role they play is also in making policy recommendations. So the World Health Organization um, has policy recommendations for the prevention, screening, and treatment of cervical cancer. And most countries around the world adopt those recommendations so that we find, let's say in our work in Mexico and Nepal, um, in the books, um, the uh, policies are exactly what they should be. So the problem is not necessarily that we need to convince policymakers to change policy. That might not be true for every health issue, but it's quite common. So it's further downstream from policy. So then we have to figure out, we can start maybe from the bottom up and survey and speak to uh, um, uh, women who are coming into clinics who are eligible for screening, find out what they know about cervical cancer, what their barriers uh, might be to seeking out screening. And then for those who have received an abnormal screen, um, uh, their barriers to following up with that. And then we can talk to providers at the different levels to find out why they're not following national guidelines. And reasons can be um, 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 things like they don't have the time with all their other responsibilities. They don't have the uh, supplies that are needed um, to actually do the screenings and treatments. They haven't properly been trained and they don't feel comfortable doing them. Um, or their uh, stigma is also a big issue in cancer uh, for both men and women and both uh, clients uh, and patients as well as providers can have stigma where they want to avoid talking about cancer um, and screening, um, um, screening, preventing, and treating cancer. So implementation scientists will try to figure out what are the most, uh, what are the primary barriers at this different uh, at these different levels, and then also what are the facilitators? Because oftentimes, um, say in um, the clinics we're working with in Nepal and Mexico, it's not like there's no screening going on. There is some screening going on, but it's not adequate. It's below the ideal. Um, percentages, which maybe is something like 80% of women um, who are within the eligible age range should be screened, who have had a previous normal screen, say, every three years. And um, maybe uh, 
maybe 50% of women are being screened rather than say the goal might be, of course, we'd like 100%, but maybe a more re realistic goal might be 90. So we have a long way to go to get that other 40%. Um, and, but we can still learn about what's facilitating the 50%. And then how can we leverage those facilitators to improve the program? Um, then once we collect all this information, we might design um, a multi-level, meaning that we might want to be doing things with providers, with, with the uh, facility administrators, with the clients, and even possibly people in their social networks to address the issues that have come up um, and then, um, and then uh, design an intervention um, and test it in the facilities to see if it worked. Did it improve screening rates? Did it improve follow-up rates? Was it cost-effective? Is it sustainable? And then go on from there. So these are the kinds of things um, implementation scientists do. We're not coming up with new treatments or new cures. Um, there's many causes of cancer where all the materials are there to drastically reduce cancer rates. And, and, and the challenge for us as public health professionals is to get those interventions out to adapt them um, appropriately to different cultural contexts and different health systems and, and get them out. So that's what implementation science is. Does that make sense to you, Anise? Yeah. You know, the question, though, I think, Donna, is that in many cases, this is multifactorial, right? Uh, there's a, an element of stigma. There's an element of cost. There's an element of time. There's multiple factors that go into this and kind of putting that together in a cultural context to really try to design interventions that would be effective in increasing um you know, screening or other preventative measures. So for example, when we talk about cervical cancer, another one that is often um, missing in the global context is vaccines, is something that often is a little bit uh, challenging. So what I'd like to do is pick up the conversation there. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about global health and oncology with my guest, Dr. Donna Spiegelman. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their one-of-a-kind sexuality, intimacy, and menopause program combines medical and psychological interventions for women who experience sexual dysfunction after cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Donna Spiegelman. We're talking about global oncology care, and right before the break, Donna was telling us about an example of cervical cancer, which, uh, while relatively rare here in the U.S., is relatively common in many low-to-middle-income countries like Mexico and Nepal, where she has projects. She was also talking to us about implementation science, this idea that we can translate knowledge. So we know, for example, that uh, implementation of vaccines and pap smears has been pretty effective here in the U.S. in preventing cervical cancer. So why isn't that happening in other low-to-middle-income countries? And Donna, before the break, as I was saying, it really sounds like this is multifactorial. So there are issues with regards to time. There are issues with regards to cost. There are issues with regards to cultural barriers. There may be stigma. Uh, there may be uh, health uh, care workforce issues, um, all of which play into this very complicated puzzle. So can you tell us a little bit more about... Uh, some of your projects in Mexico and Nepal and uh, what your results have been. So what what strategies you've tried um, to reduce cervical cancer? What's worked? What hasn't? And what are your next steps? Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Anais, and um, I'm happy to be back here. Um, so in Nepal, where we're, we're furthest along, um, we've been looking at at um, barriers and facilitators to screening. It turns out in many low and middle income countries, pap smears doesn't appear to be feasible as the way to screen. And there are some other methods for screening, um, including um, something called a visual inspection by acetic acid or VIA, where it's a very low tech way to screen, uh, where the woman's cervix is painted with, um, with a solution of vinegar. And then if there are abnormal cells, they turn white. And then if those cells turn white, those cells can be removed right then and there through either a heat treatment or a freezing treatment. And um, so that's called like test and and treat. And it's a very uh, appealing option because it doesn't involve this this series of appointments and um, visits that happen to have to take place, say, with pap smears. And then um, there's another method that's being promoted now that has to do with, um, as you've mentioned, Anise, very briefly, I haven't quite gotten into it, that a necessary cause of cervical cancer is infection with the HPV vaccine, the human papillomavirus. I'm sorry, the HPV virus, um, not the vaccine. Um, And there's a vaccine that will um, eliminate infection to the HPV virus that's been found now to be effective in preventing cervical cancer. And again, this is available widely in the United States and barely available at all in many other low- and middle-income countries, including um, Nepal and Mexico. Um, So um, back to the H. 
um, PV virus, um, because it's a necessary, a persistent infection with this virus is necessary for cervical cancer to develop. Another approach that's been suggested is first to test women gynecologically for infection with certain subtypes of HPV, the 16 and 18 subtypes. We're kind of used to these subtypes of viruses now that we know about COVID-19 subtypes. Um, and if women have that um, viral infection, um, then they can go on to these uh, further steps such as VIA. Um, and that way it eliminates um, this uh, more invasive procedure and seems to be more acceptable for women. So in Nepal, what we're doing right now is looking at the, um, um, the acceptability, appropriateness, and feasibility of an HPV um, approach to screening versus the straight VIA for everybody. And um, we don't have our results yet. Um, but things are going very well, and we'll soon see what our findings are. And then from there, we might go on and um, develop an intervention using one or the others of these and addressing further at maybe a more systems level, um, which might be more acceptable and sustainable. At the same time, we're also looking at stigma. So we've interviewed women um, and providers uh, about their feelings about um, cancer um, and um, the extent to which um, they, uh, the fear associated with it, how they may or may not stigmatize other people who might have it, how how they feel their life might change should they have it. And we found um, fairly high levels of stigma, um, both among um, providers and and women. So um, what what we're now thinking about is um, addressing stigma and its impact on health is is quite advanced um, among um, the HIV AIDS world where it's a major issue. But it's just really um, can, uh, addressing cancer stigma and its impact on um, preventing screening um, and treatment among people who are at risk for cancer or have cancer is a relatively new field. And so uh, what uh, we're working on as well as others is how to adapt what are called stigma reduction interventions that have been used successfully among people living with HIV and providers working with them to women who uh, may have cervical cancer. Um, so that's where we are in Nepal. And actually in Mexico, we're in a very similar place doing very similar things. And um, even though cervical cancer, as I mentioned, is rare in the United States, we still have health disparities based on race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. So for example, here in the United States, uh, including here in New Haven, Black and Hispanic women have around a 30 to 40% higher uh, incidence of cervical cancer than do white and non-Hispanic women. And Black women have the highest age adjusted mortality rates, still much lower than those that we see in Nepal, Mexico, India, and elsewhere, but still unacceptably high given the disparity we have within our own country. It's so interesting that you you, you mentioned the work here in New Haven. What I, I wonder is, you know, it would seem to me that many of the factors that go into why uh, people are suffering with cervical cancer uh, in New Haven versus in other parts of the world may be different. So, for example, we know that the HPV vaccines are widely available here in the U.S. 
Whereas in low to middle income countries, they may not be as available. So have you looked into these various factors that may be playing in? And can you tell us about how they're different? So um, the HPV vaccine is targeted to younger women, um, even teenage girls, 12 and 13 year old girls, uh, up to uh, women who are previously have not initiated sexual relations with men. And um it, it's it. What we've seen is maybe 20 or 30 years later, when cervical cancer develops, the rates are much lower among girls um, who had been vaccinated at that early time. So um, vaccinating girls is very important for preventing cervical cancer in the future. But in terms of those of us women who are around now, you know, 30 plus, the vaccine is not likely, it's not believed to, it's not believed that the vaccine will help us. And these other sorts of screening, PAP, VIA, HPV, followed by VIA, et cetera, are the approaches that are needed to prevent uh, cervical cancer among 30, 40, 50, 60 year old women who are alive today. So there are these two different strategies based on age. Um, and then in terms of uh, did the differences by culture, um, it seems to me that, um, um, that pap smear um, has been made widely available in the United States such that cervical cancer is, um, you know, a very uh, rare disease uh, here in the United States with the disparity and whether um, um, the, what are the causes of the disparity here in the United States might uh, probably have similarities um, with what's happening in Mexico and Nepal, for example, stigma. And there might be cultures where stigma is within the United States is more important than others. We have a PhD student here in the chronic disease epidemiology department who's working with me and Dr. Sheth on um, investigating the, the extent to which stig cancer stigma is operating among women in New Haven and providers in the Cornell Scott clinics um, who are treating them. And we'll have more information about that in the next six months to a year. Um, there can also be um, uh, um, issues with provider training, provider overload, burnout, um, um, so forth. And um, there can be issues similarly to other countries with not having the time to go in, not being able to get off work, not having the money to be able to get to the clinic, um, and so on. And so all of these things need to be looked at, and we'll see um, how different they are from one place to another. My personal bias, uh, having done quite a bit of um, public health research, both in the United States as well as overseas, is that people are pretty similar everywhere, and um, the issues that come up are pretty similar everywhere. Of course, there's exceptions, and we always have to be mindful full of those and to adapt our interventions to um, to optimally um, uh, reach um, the people who are we we are trying to reach yeah I mean I think some of the issues that you mention uh, are pretty ubiquitous right uh, lack of time uh, physician overload burnout uh, you know etc etc to address these issues, however, it seems like there would need to be larger societal policy changes uh, that are made that really address these issues. Can you talk a little bit about um, 
you know, where we are in terms of work that's moving the issue on the policy level? Well, um, globally, um, I think that um, the main effort that I know about is that the World Health Organization um, initiated a zero cervical cancer campaign. Um, I don't remember the year, the target goal of the year. And oftentimes um, when they have, say, zero polio or zero TB, um, it does stimulate governments to put more effort and money into implementing their national policies. Because like I said, um, in every country that I've ever worked in, on any health issue, um, the policies that we would like to see are in the books. So uh, the question is more the political will to um, increase implementation. And, you know, unfortunately, it, um, in many countries, it's sort of a zero-sum situation in that if more money is put into cervical cancer, less money is put into HIV. And, um, um, you know, that's not always true, but it's often true unless new donor money can be raised for a specific health issue. Um, and sometimes that happens. So, um, so yeah. I guess uh, what we're trying to do is maybe go a little bit from the bottom up and demonstrate that these issues can, if there's the political will to implement at scale, we have, um, we have effective and cost-effective um, implementation strategies that can address the issue. And here they are. Dr. Donna Spiegelman is Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Biostatistics at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.